I put a jacket on today. Okay, and you know the boy from Hawaii don't wear no tie, okay, so you don't get a tie, but you do get a jacket because it was freezing, but I thought I would, <laughs> it is cold, man, I tell you, I'm not used to below 80, okay, so work. let's work on that, all right, um, but you know, CUC is a very special class, and we're very blessed that the volunteer speakers we have put the time in to give us great inspiration and great thought and great process. And we created an A-list. I mentioned that the last time I was up here. And I'll tell you, this gentleman is on our, not only our A-list, but on our double A-list. And so we're very happy to have Scott back again. Please give Scott a warm welcome and pay attention. He's going to tell you something good. <laughs> He's just a sweetie. He's got a new game. So um, he likes the squeaky balls. He likes the big ones. The little ones are not as interesting. But when you get the little ones, he can fit several of them in his mouth. <laughs> so if you throw one, you're not getting it back. If you throw two, he'll go hide behind the chair and play keep away all day long. But if you get three of them out and you keep two of them squeaking, he'll drop the one and you toss him one. And he'll, like, keep giving you one forever. Forever. And Kathleen is not terribly excited that he's discovered this game because the squeaking just drives her nuts. She's like, if y'all are going to do that, y'all got to go in the bedroom and close the door because I don't want to hear it. So. so last week we started talking about the parables. And we talked a lot about what a parable is and how it works and, and how, you know, kind of, the idea that we're trying to get to is we really want to experience the parables like the people that were sitting on the hillside when Jesus was talking to them, right? We so often look at what Jesus had to say through the lens of after Easter, first of all, and through the lens of, of 2,000 years of interpretation. But Jesus was talking to folks in particular times and places and in situations in their lives to, to share with them a message, right? And, and I think it's important that as much as interpretation helps us to get additional meanings, we want to find what did the people who were sitting on that hillside, who were by and large Jews of the first century, they were certainly the first century, but they might have been Romans, they might have been Jews, they might have been working class, they might have been all different kinds of people. But what what would they had have what would they have heard based on their experience? And there's kind of where we're we're trying to get to. What did the people who were sitting at Jesus' feet hear? What was it that they were hearing when he talked? In particular, with respect to the parables, because the parables are where Jesus' storytelling abilities comes in. You know, so we love a good story because the stories will have meanings. We love to hear a story because we take something out of it and and we can see the painting of the of the story and get more out of it than we would out of just a, a bunch of bullet items. One of the key aspects of the parable is that there's something surprising that's kind of a turn. And this is so often where we get tripped up. We don't get surprised by the things that they would have been surprised by. Last week, we were talking about the parable of the seed and the sower, right? Or the soils where the sower put the seed out and some of it went on the path and some of it went on the rocky ground and some of it went on good soil. And, and he talked about 
the fact that it, it turned a, a return on the, that harvest of 30, 60, or 100 times what was sown. Mm. We're sitting here in Roswell. Is that good or is that bad? You know? And, and for that time and place, nobody had gotten a harvest. A, a harvest of 40 times what you sowed would have been miraculous. A hundred times would have been amazingly miraculous. And the only way any of that could have happened is by the hand of God. That's a surprising thing to them. Now, we were talking afterwards and we said, you know, if you're, you're like out in Iowa and you're only getting a hundred times, is it worth putting the, soil, the seed out? Yeah, maybe not, you know? So it's it's a matter of what's exciting, what's surprising, what what helps to to grab the listeners. So I think that it helps us to put ourselves into their situation so that we can hear what they had to say. The parables so often are couched in metaphor, and this is important to understand that Jesus talks in metaphors as opposed to allegories, right? So so metaphor is saying something is like something. It's raining cats and dogs. It's a metaphor. My wife's favorite song, Blondie's Heart of Glass. You know, is her heart really made of glass? No, it's just fragile and can be broken, right? These are metaphors, right? And Jesus uses metaphor a lot. And sometimes we go astray when we forget that. It's also important to look at what does the text actually say? Not what do we remember about it having said, right? It's what is it that it says? Now, does this mean that I'm getting all hung up on getting to some sort of an originalist perspective of, oh, we can't find any meaning unless we know exactly the words that Jesus said? And that No, no. But we look at what does the scripture say? Because in, in the Gospels, where we find the parables, the Gospel writers are taking Jesus' stories. And we've seen how they kind of put them into situations. They, they recount different situations where these stories were used to share different messages. And we'll see today one of his stories that, that is three different ways of the same story. Does that mean that one is right and the other two are wrong or that all three are wrong because they're different? Or does it mean that Jesus had stories that had meaning that he shared in different ways with different people? I don't tell a story the same way every time. You know, it's going to it's gonna shift. It's, I'm going to use different words but have the same ideas. So we need to look at what the text says to see what Jesus is, is emphasizing. What's the setting of the lesson, right? Where are they when this is happening? Last week we talked about, again, the, 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 the sower and the soils, the seed and the soils. At that time, they were by the Sea of Galilee in the area of Chorazim, which is the most fertile land in all of Galilee, which was the most fertile land in all of Israel. So talking about seeds and soils would be a natural thing, right? Our setting of our story is not necessarily that, so we don't necessarily catch the same pieces. We have to work harder. And then where is the setting of the story? Where are the people in the story, right? Is the story set in a garden? Is the story set in a, in a, a house, right? That's part of the message, too. We can't pull things out of that. Now, let's talk a little bit about allegories, because as, as Christians over the years, over the centuries, have looked at the parables so often we look at them in terms of an allegory. So what's an allegory? The word reminds me of algebra. Okay? X plus Y equals Z. Find the answer for X. And that's how we often treat the parables. As an algebra equation where we have to find what stands for what. That there's some sort of a magic 
decoder ring that we have to use. Now, if you look back in the history of the church, right, and you look in, in let's say, later parts like of the of the New Testament, Paul's letters where he's talking about various kinds of of, of challenges that the early church is having, we, we've heard the history and, and know at least a little bit about the fact that there were these groups called the Gnostics who believed in an allegorical reading of pretty much everything, right? And you had to have the right understanding to know what meant what and what stood for what. That was the secret knowledge that you had to have to be able to know God. Jesus was kind of like, no, I'm trying to make it clear to you, not more complicated, right? So when we look at allegories, uh, sometimes an allegory might be called something that's supposed to mean more than it has any right to mean. It wasn't meant to be that, right? So, so here's an example. The Good Samaritan. We all know the story, right? A guy's going from Jerusalem to Jericho, he gets mugged, priest walks by, Levite walks by, Samaritan walks by, helps him out. Basically the story. One little detail in all of that that was kind of interesting to me is Jim Fleming points out that, note that the text, when you read the text, says he was robbed and left half naked. Okay, let's say you're living in, in the area of Israel, Palestine, Judea, up and down that part of the world. It's a relatively homogenous place, relatively, at least at that time, racially. If you take people's distinctive clothes away, can I tell if the naked guy on the side of the road is a Jew or a Samaritan, if he's rich or if he's poor? No, all I know that he's lying on the side of the road bloody, right? So that's another aspect of the story that we don't often take into account, that the Samaritan wasn't helping a Jew, he was helping a guy, who was injured. Well, St. Augustine, however, so St. Augustine was one of the, the, the theologians of the fourth century. He was from North Africa. And, and so much of Augustine makes lots of sense, but then sometimes it just is overly complicated. He said, this is Jim Fleming's paraphrase of quoting from Augustine. He says, this is, this is, this is how Augustine explained the parable of the Good Samaritan. There was a man going from Jerusalem down to Jericho. Jerusalem is heaven. That's God's city. Descend means the fall of Adam. Jericho means hell. The thieves are the barbarians who will rob you of your culture. The Levites represent the Jews. And then Jim says, these are commended by, and they were commended by God. Condemned by God. See, it's far away and I can't see. We have contempt for them. So Jim's like, this is a parable that Jesus says Proving that you should have contempt for the Jews because a priest and a Levite came by and had their nose up? Does that make sense? The Samaritan is really the monks of the church. Okay. The Samaritan poured out oil. This is the Holy Spirit. I didn't know that monks poured out the Holy Spirit. The Samaritan put the wounded merchant on the donkey. Well, the donkey, of course, is Jesus. The inn is the church. Jesus brings the wounded to the church. The innkeeper is the apostle Paul. Okay. The two coins that the Samaritan gave the innkeeper are for the gospel and the law. And, and this allegorical reading is, I mean, so for centuries, we've looked at texts and read them often this way. We say, okay, who in this parable is God? Who in this parable is me? Is it always the case that somebody stands for somebody else? Metaphor. The question that so often is the, the parables are in response to is, what's the kingdom of God like? Right? So when we try to look at things allegorically, we're going to miss a whole lot. We're, now, does that mean that an allegorical reading is never a good thing? No, it doesn't mean that at all. Because when we look at something like this, 
that it helps us to remember important aspects of our faith. One, one of the things we've talked about before is the Apostles' Creed. And one of the traditions of the Apostles' Creed is kind of sort of, let's think of this as an allegory, is, is they, they said that each line was provided by an apostle. Well, we know that's not the case because the creed didn't come to us in, in, in the form that it is with that kind of number of sentences until the 6th century where, I mean, the last of the apostles died in 95, right? 6th century, they're not still there. But it helps us to remember these things and to put things together that are important. It's important to remember that that the monks of the church are are sharing the Holy Spirit and are are a place that we can learn and understand how the Holy Spirit works. But did that mean that this is exactly what Jesus was talking about? I'm skeptical that Jesus was talking about the innkeeper being Paul. Okay, you know, uh, so so allegory is a dangerous thing. Because it's easy for us to read our own meaning in and read Jesus' meaning out, right? So be careful with that. So we're going to look at the parable of the mustard seed, which is a little tiny parable. It's a little tiny parable that, that is not an obvious thing. We make it obvious, and then I think that we may not get what Jesus had to say. And we make it complicated, and I think we may not get what Jesus had to say. So in this parable, which shows up three times, I'm going to look at it from Mark and from Matthew and from Luke. And Mark, he says, and he said, how shall we picture the kingdom of God? Or by what parable shall we present it? It's like a mustard seed, which when sown upon the soil, though it's small, smaller than all the seeds that are upon the soil, Yet when it's sown, it grows up and becomes larger than all the garden plants and forms large branches so that the birds of the air can nest under its shade. Now, I on purpose picked New American Standard because last week I mentioned that New American Standard, anytime there's a quotation from the Old Testament, puts it in small caps, right? This is often useful, but I think it's sometimes a trick. (laughs) Matthew says, he presented another parable to them saying, the kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed, which a man took and sowed in his field. And this is smaller than all the other seeds, but when it's full grown, it's larger than the garden plants and becomes a tree, so that the birds of the air come and nest in its branches. There's some differences, but we'll look at that. Luke says, So he was saying, What is the kingdom of God like, and to what shall I compare it? It's like a mustard seed, which a man took and threw into his own garden, and it grew and became a tree, and the birds of the air nested in it. Okay, so we've got a parable. What do you make of it? What's it mean? What do you think? I don't know either. <laughs> well, we'll see that. We'll talk about that one. From a small seed, something big. We'll talk about that. Um, to me, I'm not, I, it's hard for me to grab something really quick. I have to think about it for a while. And, and I have to try hard not to stray off into an allegorical reading, because does that really feel like that makes sense? I mean, Jesus begins this by saying, what's the kingdom like? Like. That's a word that says metaphor. That doesn't say to me, how do I turn it into a this means that, right? It doesn't say what does the kingdom mean. It doesn't say what does the seed mean. So let's look at it. What's the setting? Well, it's in all three of the Gospels. It's all three of the synoptic Gospels. John doesn't use it, but all three of the others do. In Mark, the setting of the telling of it is they're by the Sea of Galilee. And it's it's included in a section that includes the sower and the soils. We looked at that last time. The parable of the seed, where he plants a seed and it's hidden and I didn't do anything to make it grow, but it grows, right? And then right after this, they go out in the boat, Jesus calms the sea, and he, he continues with healings after that. So it's kind of in a passage that, that looks like that. He's along, he's, he's ministering along the Sea of Galilee. In Matthew, again, they're by the Sea of Galilee. 
It's with the sower and the soils. It's, it's along with the tares and the wheat, where the farmer scattered his seed, and then somebody came and put weeds in the midst of it. What are we going to do with that? And he said, let it all grow, and I will take care of it when it's grown at the harvest time. It's in there with the hidden leaven, or the woman who leavened three measures of flour, which is another actually interesting story. It's in with the hidden treasure and the pearl of great price and and the, the net full of fishes. And then after this, they go back to Nazareth. And then in Luke, it's right after Luke, I mean, it's right after Jesus has done a healing on the Sabbath. And he's in with, well, he's, he's, it's grouped in with, with again, the leaven. And, and then he goes on to the villages and he's on his way to Jerusalem. So I'm not sure what I'm going to get from where the gospel writers necessarily put it. But I think if I worked hard, we might be able to figure out something. Um, I, I kind of feels like the Marquins are all about seeds and things that we understand about seeds. And, you know, so, so that, that might be a place to look. But what's surprising in this story? Yeah. Okay. So, so the bigness of the kingdom. Yeah. And, and so it grows big. And that actually gets interesting when we start looking at the words that they use. Um, which again, I think that we miss some of that and we have to be careful and, and get help by being sure that we, we look at multiple different kinds of reliable sources because the Greek that's used is kind of interesting in that. Not that I know Greek, but that I read books that by people who do. Right. So, but when we read it, it's, there's not a thing that jumps right out at me. It's not like a Samaritan who expect to not be helpful being helpful, right? There's not a, a, a big glaring, hey, that's really interesting and weird. There's not a miraculous harvest, right? There's, there's, okay, we've got mustard and it's in the garden and the birds are hanging out. So what can we do with this? Let's look a little more. Well, we, we do see this idea of something small becomes something big, right? Every time we plant, something small becomes something big. We understand that, you know? Little things grow into big things, whether it's... So So does that telling us about the kingdom, that the kingdom is going to grow? Or is that saying, you know, uh, how how would the people there on the, on the with Jesus have understood what he's saying about the kingdom of God? What are they expecting about the kingdom? What are they expecting... And maybe part of the surprise here is, is we read about the time of Jesus and we, we hear, we're going to think about the Palm Sunday story where Jesus has his triumphal entry into Jerusalem. What kind of a kingdom are the people looking for? They're looking to get in charge, right? One way or another, kick the Romans out. We're going to, you know, we're going to be a nation once again and, and we're going to have it to ourselves. And, and so maybe there's something here about this from something small to something large about the kingdom, right? Yeah. Right, right. But they have had, they have had a history of, of being a nation and then being in exile and then having a tradition that Messiah is going to come and Messiah is going to bring God's kingdom and reestablish God's kingdom here. Right, and so there's some aspect of that going on um, on the earthly kingdom, and then how does that translate into the heavenly kingdom? So they have some ideas about that, and and he's saying, "What's the kingdom like?" And he talks about mustard and birds. Right. <laughs> so a lot of of church people have read this and said, "Well, this is this is how the kingdom grows. This is how the church spreads. The church spread." And 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 looking back, this is a perfectly good reading for us to get a good lesson. That the church began with Jesus and his teachings in this small group of people in this small backwater place, 
and and within a few years it covers the Mediterranean, and within a few centuries it's covering the known world, right? The known Western world. So so that that pervasive growth, growing from something small, is 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 a valuable lesson. Is that necessarily what Jesus is trying to get us to hear? Yeah. Yeah. At the same time, we, I'm, I'm sitting here thinking that, yeah. that Dave said that expands my thinking considerably. It's not just one mustard seed and right. one tree. Right. It's the fact that a tree, any mustard seed. And it makes more. More and more. And more. Yeah, it's like that old shampoo commercial with two friends and so on and so on and so on, yeah. you know? Yeah, it grows and expands. And that expansion, yeah. Well, right. And the farmer didn't make it make it germinate. That's God. And so that's part of this understanding that, that maybe part of the message is we have to do our part of the planting and God is going to do God's part to get to the result. Yeah. That's a little bit of effort. Yeah. And, and I think that in, that in that parable of the hidden seed, that's exactly the message, right? So that, that the seed is planted and the farmer comes and goes and comes and goes, but the farmer is not the one who made it grow. The gifts of God of the water and the sun and, and, and the earth did that. But this small to large, that's, that's certainly, it's a good reading. It's a good reading. But he also said something that might have been the birds of the air. Well, well, but so again, is it necessarily anything, anything stands for anything? Are we trying to make it allegorical and say, you know, the tree represents something? Because a metaphor says that the qualities of this are like the qualities of that. God is my rock. I'm not saying that God is something, the rock stands for something. I'm saying that God is solid. God is trustworthy. God is going to be there. God is is, is not going to be moving around on me, right? Uh, yeah. Yes. Yes. I think that we're getting to it. I think that we're getting to it. We're getting to it. Yeah. Furthermore, the birds are going to spread the seed. Yes, exactly. They are. Yeah. And they're going to they're gonna do that. They're going to take it and they're going to spread it. And that's, I think that's, a lot closer to the meaning rather than so we got these things in there that we're working on what do they mean one of them that we've not talked about is what about the fact that it's mustard right a bunch of commentators who i think none of them ever grew up on a farm <laughs> will comment on things like they'll talk about the fact that mustard is a noxious weed well i mean it grows pretty wild and if you let it get crazy it's hard to eradicate yeah but I mean, A.J., who wrote this book, A.J. Levine, points out, okay. Oh, and then they go on to say that, 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 that no good Jew would ever plant two things in their field because that violates the purity laws. And she's like, no, no, this is dumb. You know, that's dumb. Um, that's, not, that's not what the law, how the laws were understood. That's not what the law said. And, oh, by the way, they would lots of times have mustard around. Even the, the, the rabbis would discuss what's the appropriate amount of mustard that you can plant. And then this is whole discussion. This whole discussion that the one said, "Well, okay, three plots of mustard is okay, but more than that is bad." And that reminds me of my wife and I just watched, you know, Monty Python and the Holy Grail and the Holy Hand Grenade of Antioch and the number of the planting shall be three. And, um, but but then another says, "No, no, nine is okay. Ten's right out. Nine is good." And I think that's a, a, a part of it is that if you let this stuff get away from you, you're going to be sorry. But mustard's good. Mustard is medicinal. Mustard tastes really good. Yeah. Well, but it doesn't. But it doesn't. It doesn't. That's the other part of this. We get hung up on these words. Mustard doesn't have the smallest seed. Lots of things have smaller seeds. Must. Yep. The cedars of Lebanon, the great trees, have way smaller seeds than the mustard. 
Lots of things have smaller seeds than a mustard seed. You know? And a mustard seed was not a thing that was generally talked of as the smallest thing. So somebody hearing it wouldn't have thought, oh, he said mustard seed. That means the littlest possible. They didn't, I mean, I don't know. It just wasn't a figure of speech. It wasn't a figure of speech. So, so the fact that it's mustard, though, I think is good because mustard is one of those things. It goes, it spreads, it spreads, it, it, it's a useful plant, you know. So these are parts of the image that somebody sitting there is going to hear that we might not, right? But, th- but it's not as much an idea of a symbolism, okay? It's not a fact that the mustard stands for something. It's that what's the kingdom of God like? We're planting mustard. What's the mustard like? What's the bird like? What's the fact that, that, that we've planted it somewhere? What does that tell us? So I think that we have to kind of look and see whether we're making things into symbols that Jesus necessarily wasn't. One of the other things that we hadn't talked about is the role. Well, we did kind of talk about this. The role of the seed that grows with God's intervention and the sower who tosses it, right? He didn't make it grow. If we get hung up on words, was it sown? Did he go and make a row and plant it, each one? Or was it thrown? Some of the parables say sown. Some say thrown. Thrown is carelessly scattered. Sown is purposefully placed, right? Is it a tree? Is it a large plant? Or is it a vegetable? And this is a for real question because if you look at the Greek that is used, this is one of the things that A.J. Levine says, is that, okay, so remember when Paul in Romans is talking about how some of the believers eat meat and some eat only vegetables. The Greek that he uses is the same Greek that is called out in Mark's account of the parable as a vegetable. Luke calls it a tree and uses Greek for tree. That word for vegetable, it's interesting that that in Romans it gets translated as vegetable, but the same word gets translated as shrub in Mark, probably because Matthew and Luke say tree, right? And then there's this idea of, of, okay, we think it's a weed. Well, the word that is in the parable is either tree or vegetable. Jesus talks about weeds. Remember the tares and the wheat? Jesus talks about weeds and uses words for weeds. He doesn't use those words. So why would we think it's a weed? Okay. And it's, it's, it's interesting to look at the words and what the words really are. And we never would have known that. I would never have known that unless I relied on someone who knew how to look at those words. And this also shows that trying to get back to an original exact set of words that Jesus said, Jesus was talking to folks. And we last time we said, do you try to speak in categorical pronouncements that are exact every time you say something to somebody? Jesus was telling a story. And so so what was it? it I don't know. In some of the, the, the accounts, this was planted in the garden. And the words that are used are like for the household garden. Now, in that kind of allegorical reading, I'm thinking, where did, where did we hear of gardens before? Well, there's actually lots of places. But let's start from the start, right? Right? A garden where things were planted and where we had safety and where we had a place to live, right? The others, the other accounts talk about it being a field. And if I understand this as, as a noxious weed, why would I put it in the field and want to have birds in my field? Don't we put up scarecrows to keep all that out? So we have to kind of think about what does it look like? What are we trying to say? And, and do any of these distinctions between sown and thrown, is that really the point of what he's having to say? It's 
what's the kingdom of God like, right? Now, one of the things that, that I do find people getting hung up on with respect to some of this is that, again, that idea of precise speech. Is mustard the smallest seed? Is it the largest plant? Is it a tree? No, it's about this high. That's about this high. There's some varieties of mustard that can get to be about 10 feet tall, but that's not usually what people were growing, right? But it gets to be a pretty good-sized thing. Some people will read this and say that because the Bible is not being a scientifically precise botany textbook, that it can't be trusted. If you take an absolute inerrant point of view, then that's the logical conclusion. And, and I actually heard a podcast this last week that was interesting. It, a lot of that kind of, to me, to me comes from, and this is that other lesson that, that I talked about last week that someday I'll put together of how do we approach what the Bible is. But that if we approach the Bible in that way, that's really a Western sort of modern perspective, a way of thinking that we expect it to be a precise, scientifically detailed sort of thing. But the really interesting part is that, that when you have atheists call out the unreliability of the text, they always approach it as, oh, well, it's not scientifically precise, therefore it can't be true. Okay? When the question really is, is that what the Bible's trying to be? No, the Bible is trying to be God revealing God's self to us and showing us what we need to know for salvation. When Jesus gives a parable, he says, what is it like? He's not saying, now let me give you a botany lesson, right? And, and to expect the Bible to be a science book isn't always the right answer. And we look at the mustard. Is it cultivated? Is it wild? Is it a weed? Or is it something that, that is good for medicine and tastes good on your hot dog? You know? So, so then why would you put it in your field? Why would you have it in your garden? And, and these are the words that we can get caught up in and that people will try to, to figure out more and more about, and then they get to the birds. And I say, well, what about these birds? Okay? Remember the texts that we had, the New American Standard called out birds of the air and nest in its branches as citations back to the Old Testament. Those are passages that get called out in the Old Testament. And they get used in lots of interesting ways, right? So in Ezekiel 17, they use the, the uh, God planting a cedar tree, and it grows up, and the birds of the air nest in its branches as, as, as part of a parable about, about the rebellion of Zedekiah, right? Um, we have in Ezekiel again that, that this whole thing of the birds are going to nest in the branches of the great cedar tree of Assyria that's toppled, right? So it's in a parable about the demise of empire, right? And so people will read that and they say, oh, the last time they said birds of the air and nest in its branches, they meant about collapse of empire. Therefore, this story of the mustard seed really must be about the kingdom of God overthrowing the kingdom of Rome, right? Because it's about empire. The same kind of thing in Daniel, where Daniel's talking about Nebuchadnezzar's descent into madness. He says that the birds of the air will make its branches, make its nest in the branches. But then in Psalms, it's all about this glorious description of God's handiwork and that place of safety and that place where we can live and rest. So, so I'm not always convinced that just because the same words occur here and occur here that this is always referring to that. And we have to be careful about that. We have to, to, to not read our own preconditions into the text. Because ultimately, the parable begins with Jesus saying, with what can we compare the kingdom of God? Or what parable will we use for it? And so y'all can't see this by reading. This is Jesus talking to a bunch of his buddies. 
And he says, so the seven foolish bridesmaids got locked out of the whole shindig. And the follower says, why can't you ever give a simple answer? We merely wanted to know what the kingdom of heaven is like. That's the way it always is with you. You never just come out and say something. It's always foolish bridesmaids this and lost sheep that. Don't plant seeds in rocky soil. What's that got to do with me? Just once, can't you give a simple, straightforward answer? And Jesus is looking kind of sad at this point. And he perks up and says, see, it's like this. This fig tree. (laughs) But you remember those stories. You remember those stories. And you get more out of them, right? And so what if the birds are birds and the seeds are seeds, right? I want to read just a little tiny passage from, from stories by Jesus, which is uh, short stories about Jesus, which is this really great book about the parables. And this is finally, the image of, is of domestic concern. The seed parable is set in a garden or a local field. The kingdom of heaven is found in what today we might call our own backyard, in the generosity of, neighbor, of nature and the daily working of men and women. We need not adopt an anti-empire image here. Better would be the notion that the lust for big-time success is misplaced. The challenge of the parable can be much homier. Don't ask when the kingdom comes or where it is. The when is in its own good time as long as it takes for the seed to sprout. The where is that it is already present in cohate in the world. The kingdom is present when humanity and nature work together, and we do what we were put here to do, to go out on a limb to provide for others as well as ourselves. So, I mean, that's how Professor Levin is understanding this, and she's saying that this is, it's, it's kind of this... We're going back to the garden. What's the kingdom of God like? Somebody planted seed, and in that seed, we grew up into a place that we could be safe and that we could live and, 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 and find that home. And it sounds maybe like the garden, right? And so, so where is it? It's all around us. When is it? Well, I didn't do anything to make the seed grow, but the seed's going to grow in the seed's time. I, I love that. Yeah. yeah. Put it in the garden. Yeah. And makes the kingdom of God like the garden before the fall of man. Yep. United with God. Wow. Didn't Loggins and Messina have a song about that going back to the garden? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Oh, I... And so, so, and is this exactly, I don't know. I don't know if that's exactly the meaning that Jesus had intended. But when he says, the other thing to understand is with metaphors, you're looking around at every angle. You have to have lots of metaphors to get a full picture. Remember the story of the blind man and the elephant. Each one saw a different aspect of the elephant in order to find out who the elephant was. So so there's lots of different ex- explanations that help us bring the picture into focus rather than to, to cut things out and to give us some sort of an allegorical meaning that, that helps us just to reinforce what we already thought. So just to kind of wrap wrap up, Dr. Levine talks about this is the power of disturbing stories. And she, she has a few comments, a few quotes about the power of parables and how we use them and, and how they fit. And she says, Jesus told parables because they serve as keys that can unlock the mysteries we face by helping us ask the right questions, how to live in community, how to determine what ultimately matters and how to live life that God wants us to live. They're Jesus' way of teaching and are remembered to this day, not simply because they're part of the Christian canon, but because they continue to provoke and to challenge and to inspire. Jesus knew that the best teaching concerned how to live and to live abundantly. The best teaching comes not from spoon-fed data or an answer sheet. Instead, it comes from narratives that remind us of what we already know, but we're resistant to recall. 
right? So think about the Good Samaritan. The lawyer knew the answer when he asked the question. Remember that it says trying to justify himself, he asked, who is my neighbor? He knew what the answer was. He just didn't want to hear it. The parables, if we take them seriously, not as answers, but as invitations, can continue to inform our lives, even as our lives continue to open up the parables to new readings. There's not one immutable way of approaching this text always and forever. There's what Jesus was talking to people on the side of the hill. And there's how we hear things fresh every time. There's something new that we're going to take out of it. If the interpretation requires an answer key or a decoder ring, we're not hearing it as those who first heard it did. Jesus told parables, not allegories. If the interpretation is a platitude or a banality, we have a surface reading, but we're not fully appreciating the genius of Jesus' storytelling or the respect he had for the people who listened to him. Jesus didn't think these were dumb people. They weren't dumb people. He didn't dumb it down for them. He asked them hard questions, right? They asked him a hard question. He tossed it back. Make them think about it, you know? If the interpretation does not raise for us more questions, if it does not open us up to more conversations, if it creates a neat and tidy picture, we need to go back and read it again. But ultimately, if when we're looking at the parables, if we hear them with their original context, they gleam with a shine that cannot be hidden. These are how Jesus often answered the question, what's the kingdom of God like? And that when we look at them, we can understand what's the kingdom of God like. An allegory may be a great way to read it later on from our later perspective, but how was Jesus telling the people around him? What was the kingdom of God? And that's what we have to look at, look for. Any other thoughts, questions? Well, let's pray. Gracious Lord, we thank you for the bright sunshine of this day. We thank you for the changing of the seasons, the beauty that we see around us. We thank you for the rain that we've had that we needed so badly. Thank you for the way that we see your hand in the movement of, of time as we go from warm to cool. We go from green to orange. We move on through the wintertime, but we know that you'll return to it, return all the greenness again in the spring to take the, an understanding in our lives. The fact that you are with us through all of these sort of the difficult times, the times where we are exploding into new, new excitement and new things come into a time of slowing down and restful. We know you're with us. Help us to sit back and listen and to work hard to understand what it is you have to say to us. Bring us again together so that we can continue to look after one another and share your love with all this we ask. Amen. Thank you, Scott. I love it when you come. Your lessons are so full of knowledge and they're inspiring and all that knowledge in that brain just is all inspiring i don't know how i I can't compute uh well we leave today with heavy hearts but um it's god's plan and it's a good plan and god has plans he he knows he put this in my heart this week i was going to say this little saying a couple of weeks ago but i put i did something else instead so i had it for today it's a Max Licato out of one of his books. I love Max Licato. And it says, God never said that the journey would be easy, but he did say that the arrival would be worthwhile. So pray for Sandy, and I know you'll be with her, and we'll wait to hear about the arrangements. Anyway, make it a great week. Remember, God loves you. <laughs>